Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Graham Alexander, and I'm an elder here. It is my pleasure to serve you in that capacity here at Crothers Creek. As most of you know, one of our core values here at Crothers Creek is around membership. And I had the opportunity to sit down recently along with James Cabral, one of the other elders, with uh, Gary and Jessica Chavez. And we had a great conversation together. It was great to hear their story and their spiritual journey. So I'd like uh, Gary and Jessica to stand here this morning, wherever they may be. I was told they would be here. Where are you guys? Hey, good to see you. So, congregation, would you please join with me in officially welcoming Gary and Jessica Chavez into membership here at Crothers Creek Community Church. Thanks, guys. We're going to move into our corporate prayer time now, so I just ask that you get in your, uh, your position, your posture of prayer, and we're going to pray together the Lord's Prayer. It's going to come up on the screens behind me, and I would ask that you join me now as we do this together, the Lord's Prayer. We'll move ahead. Here we go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we are truly blessed to be called your children. And Jesus, we lift your name up on high this morning. You are our Savior, our Lord, and our King. We ask that you bless our church as we meet in your name, that you would protect and enrich our relationships and with each other, and keep us pure, O Lord, in our bodies, our minds, our soul, and our spirit. And Jesus, you have asked us to reach out to many, many more people here in Durham Region. You have asked us to welcome many more people into the kingdom of God. Lord, please, move in our hearts as we are obedient to you, and as we are obedient to the vision that you have entrusted us with. It is only through your Holy Spirit, it's through the moving of the Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, that these things will come to pass. So we'd ask, O oh Lord, that you'd move in a mighty way amongst us. Father, we also now entrust all of our resources, our time, our possessions, and our monies to you, for they are all created by you, and they were all created for you. Help us with this, I ask. We also pray and remember for Crossroads Community Church. We ask that they would be a bright light in the community that they serve. We also pray and remember our own Brett Ullman, Director of Worlds Apart Ministry. We thank you that Brett is making the difference all across the country in the lives of young people. We pray that you would continue to encourage his heart, O Lord, as he continues with this calling. We thank you, O Lord, for all of the pastors here at C4 and for with the and with the true devotion that they serve us. I would ask now that as Pastor John comes and speaks, that our hearts and minds would be open and receptive to your holy word. And finally, Jesus, I would pray and ask for a new work in someone's life here this morning, that your holy word would expose and push out the darkness in their soul in exchange for new life that is found only in you. I ask all of these things in the name of our faithful Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Hey, good morning, uh, C4. 
Oh, I know it's February, but let's try that again. Good morning, C4. There we go. Good morning. We're glad you're here this morning. And again, a hello to our online audience uh, here and wherever you might be today. Um, the experience between last week and this week's um, passage is actually experience that many of us have had as Canadians even in the last week, but let alone the last uh, few months. Last week was like uh, a spring day in the middle of summer, in the middle of winter. You know what I'm talking about? It was like plus one or plus two, and it feels like uh, 90 degrees to us up here because it's just so amazing. And then the next very day, it's like minus 20. That's the experience that we're sort of going to have today between chapter 8 in chapter 9 in the book of Romans. Chapter 8 was glorious, encouraging, all-consuming. It was just like, oh my goodness, winter is ending. And then chapter 9 is, well, minus 20 in a different way. It's encouraging, but it's a serious drop. We ended last week with the all-powerful, consuming statement, nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. Most of us, if we were thinking about it, would probably muse that the theological idea or part of Romans would be over, but it's actually not. We now enter into chapter 9, which is rooted in the idea of God's glory, our salvation, but is completely bound to an idea called election. God's glory is central to this. Now, I need to admit that this passage this morning is probably one of the hardest passages in the Bible to preach on, so I'm asking all of you to be nice to me in the next 24 hours. This, again, is where our first core value in this church is so absolutely needed. Scripture is our primary authority for faith, life, and practice. And these types of passages sometimes bring into conflict what we think and know about God and what Scripture really says. Another painted the picture, which will help us manage today like this when thinking about the idea of election. Coming to terms with the doctrine of predestination is a dramatic shift in many of our perspectives. We emerge, he writes, from the womb and progress through childhood, viewing the universe as, as, uh, with ourselves at the center. With something over time, wondrous happens, though. At some point, some act of maturing takes place for most healthy adults, and we suddenly realize that the world extends way beyond the circle of our little horizon. And then we begin to meet other people and realize that they see the world from very different viewpoints too. Soon the universe is no longer revolving around us and we accept that our little circle is but a very small part of a much grander reality. So chapter 9 is about the sovereignty of God. Chapter 10 is about the justice of God. Chapter 11 is about comfort that we find in the faithfulness that stems from his sovereignty and justice. Now Paul in the next three chapters begins a new wrestle a new wrestle in a new way, and it's personal. He is deeply pained about his friends, his fellow Jews, the people of God. Why were they not coming to droves, uh, in droves to Jesus, the Messiah, but so many non-Jews were coming and meeting Jesus as the Son of God? This, this was causing him deep, deep ache, and he was asking, well, what to do? So remember, Paul was a Jew among Jews. He never lost his love for history or ethnicity. He never lost his identity or his love for family. The whole passage that we're about to go through today is a personal struggle culminating in what we call in theology a theodicy, the defending of God's very work and his character when it's challenged. Paul starts the passage like this, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. 
He says very boldly up front, listen everyone, I am not lying. I'm speaking in the name of the one that has authority over heaven and earth. I have a good conscience, and by the way, I'm talking under and in and over the influence of the Holy Spirit. Remember, many Jews at this moment, even followers of Jesus who were Jews, were unbelievably suspicious about his theology, his loyalty, and his patriotism because he was bringing so many non-Jews into the family of God. Others just viewed him as a traitor, a heretic, an apostate. Many actually believed he was a bringer of genocide to their race through false faith. Paul says, I have, verse 2, great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. He hurt so much at the thought that the people of God were not knowing Jesus as the Messiah, the one that the whole Old Testament is about, that he cries out to God, just send me to hell. Let them go. Save them all. I want to be cursed and cut off. I want to be excommunicated. In short, Paul basically screams out, God, just damn me. Now, he knew this was impossible. But this is not mere rhetoric. He's not just writing a cool thing so we feel the emotion. Paul's huge love for Israel called him to carry the burden of the whole Jewish race, those he knew and those he did not know. This was genuine. This was intense. This was emotion. This was action, though, rooted in holy history. Never forget that Moses himself cried out the very same thing over Israel. Cut me off, God, but not the whole people. The people... Paul does a summary of everything they have. Verse 4, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenant, the receiving of the law, temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. He says, the Jewish people are adopted. At the Exodus, God proclaimed, you are my children. They had the divine glory at the tabernacle and the temple. They had something called the Shekinah glory, the very otherworldly presence of God. When they were in the desert, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, they had the visible presence of God. No one else on earth did. Covenants between God and Abraham, Moses, King David, then Jeremiah. The law, they had the Ten Commandments. They had temple worship later. There was a way for little boys and girls, men and women, and even non-Jews to access the living God. And then there was the promises, the promises of a better world, the promises of one that would come named the Messiah. One said, these seven plus advantages illustrate God's perpetual faithfulness to Israel's long history of stubborn rebellion. This quick inventory of Israel's blessing and privilege underscores the lack of excuse for failing to believe. The unbelieving majority at this time ignored the mountain of evidence before them and they chose not to trust in God, proving in the end that their unbelief was a moral issue, not an intellectual one. Ironically, they would turn their unique relationship with God into an idol. Again, making that terrible mistake that they thought the gift was more important than the giver. Supposing that their heritage would save them and they did not need to have something called faith. Before we go and just notice a little phrase at the very end of that. The Messiah who is God over all. Paul explicitly here says that whoever the Messiah is actually is God. 
This is one of those places in the Bible that if you struggle over Jesus' divinity, it's right here. He has human ancestry. He's fully human, but he also is fully God. As John said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. Truly, Jesus is not just prophet. He's God. Well, Paul begins as a master teacher starting to deal with all the questions that start coming up in the heads and hearts of all the people hearing or reading Romans for the first time. They're impersonal, they're deep, they're they're, they're intense. Question one, okay, Paul, I'm a Jew, right? I have all these rights and privileges, and if God is so great, I'm sorry, I need to say this out loud, actually, he's a liar. I mean, he's failed, God has not kept his word at all to us. If God has gone back on his word to Israel, as one wrote, then a deep chasm between the Old and New Testament opens up, and the good news no longer can claim the God of Israel as its author, and the whole plan of salvation crumbles. Paul responds and roots his answer in election, in calling, foreknowledge, predestination. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word is fail, he writes, for not all who are descended from Israel are actually Israel. So yes, Paul says, all Jews are Jews, he would say, including me, because of natural descent. But there actually are two Israels, not one, physical and spiritual. All Jews belong to an ethnic group called the Israelites or or the Hebrews, but only Jews called by God belong to the, ready, true Israel. Those that have been included in the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the people of God, the true Israel, ready, actually is the church. Rooted in Jesus the Messiah, then rooted in Messianic Jews, then rooted in many of us called non-Jews. Paul then turns to God's own history, to the founder of the Jewish people, to Abraham himself. Jews belong to Abraham, he will write in different ways. Verse 7, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, he wrote. Paul uses the story of Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, to prove his point. Ishmael was Abraham's son too, but God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. As one wrote, inheriting the promise is not based on birth alone. It depends on God's gracious intervention. And let's not forget that if you read your Bible, Abraham's had six other sons beyond these two. So to be direct this morning, God decided it was going to be Isaac, period. He writes, in other words, verse 8, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was actually stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now Paul knows what's going to happen next. Many good Jews are going to go, please Paul, please. Isaac was chosen because, you know, he was, he was son of Sarah, Abraham's full wife, not some slave named Hagar. You know the story. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids, and so Sarah says to Abraham, listen, go over to that slave and get it on, and Ishmael came. Then what happened? Well, then later Sarah had a son, and so it's obvious that God is not going to choose the line of unfaithfulness. Not so, Paul will say. Just look to the next generation, he will write. Isaac, he also has two sons. One is Jacob, one is Esau. They're twins, son born of one, sons born of one mother in one womb, born at one single act. Not only so, but Rebekah's children, verse 10, were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done, ready, anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, Not by works, but by one who calls him, 
She was told the older will serve the younger. Don't miss the phrase, election might stand. It means called. It means predestined, foreknown. Now again, you have to listen to what I preached last week to fully understand today, but let me do a simple review. Romans 8.29 reads like this. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Like I shared last week, foreknew or foreknowing is a very exciting and great idea. It's connected to words like called, elected, predestined. Now, like I shared also last week, honest Christians deeply disagree with each other over what this means. Some say this means God knows what every person's decision about salvation is going to be before they're born. And so God, in a passive way, elects us because he knows we're going to pick Jesus. Others say, give me a break, that's so human-centered. This is a God deal. God is the one who calls. It has nothing to do with us. And those who God calls in the end will be saved and also will have eternal security. And like I said last week, I strongly hold the second view. But I still hold unity and charity with those brothers and sisters that I disagree with. Amen? It's very important. The reason why I so strongly hold the second view is because the language itself leads there. For new, by definition, is to intimately know. It's an active word, not a passive word. It describes a a scrutinizing knowledge that goes beyond passive awareness. The verb, like I shared last week, was a euphemism in the first century between sexual relationships between a husband and wife. There's a difference between I know someone and I know someone. In the Old Testament, the idea was used between God and Israel. Amos 3.2, you only have I known chosen, sympathized with, loved, out of all the families of the earth. Jacob, Paul, Paul was saying, was called. Jacob was elected, chosen, foreknown, before either twin had been born. It's not about good works. It's not about birth order. It's just about God making a call. God actually reverses the birth order, which in that culture was well unheard of and huge. But don't go off the deep end with this either. Let's not misunderstand the point here. Thinking caps on. God does not call some to be saved and then call others to be damned. This isn't some like weird version of duck, duck, goose with heaven. God chooses some to be his own and he passes over others. Remember, and we talked about this last week, we all had free choice in Adam and then we all lost free choice in Adam. It was a very old famous preacher named Barnhouse who wrote it this way. Some hold that the choice of Jacob implies that God actually damned Esau. But both these brothers were born into sin, weren't they? They both had the nature of Adam. They both grew up in sin. They were both children of wrath. They were both disobedient by nature. And if there had been any merit in either of these sons, God would have been unjust in not rewarding it. Actually, the choice of one deserving man over another would be a terrible thing by God called favoritism. But when we start understanding that they were equally undeserving... The whole picture becomes different. Everything that's said in the entire Bible, he writes, about the nature of fallen people has been and must be said about Jacob and Esau. God then determined, everyone ready? For causes that are found within himself and have not been revealed to us that he decided to show favor to Jacob. Now at this moment, the next verse writhes against everything we like. Just as it is written, Paul said, Jacob I have what? Say it out loud. Loved. And Esau I have what? Oh, see, no. Hated. 
Anyone uncomfortable yet? God actually hated Esau and liked Jacob? Is this the God that you worship Sunday after Sunday? Now, understand this this morning. It's prediction? No, it's not. It's action. This reference, by the way, comes from Malachi chapter 1. This verse refers to the nations that actually come from these two brothers, the Israelites and the Edomites. But let's not misunderstand. Love and hate were used interchangeably in the Old Testament for different things. Love was connected to choice, and hate was the idea of rejection or passing over. Jesus actually used the same language about becoming a Christian in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me, he said, and does not what? Hate his mom, dad, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. How many of you just lost your salvation? No, seriously. Do you hate yourself, your parents, everything you value? That's not the point. The language is this. It's a matter of priority. It's saying that Jesus must be Savior and Lord over everything else, including those things we value the most, including ourselves and family. Paul's point here is this. God has not failed because Israel has failed. True Israel, true believers have always come to God through his sovereign choice. As John Piper wrote, Paul uses this Old Testament story of God's sovereign selection of Isaac and Jacob to establish a basic principle about the way that God deals with people. The language Paul uses and the context of the verses is clear that it applies not to nations, but to individuals. Election of individuals to salvation. Now, right about here, many of us honestly are struggling. This is not what we like, and this is not what we think. We're democratic. We're rugged individualists. Majority rules. We're pragmatic moralists. But at this moment, we all need to be really humble and be very careful because we are talking about God. God, not a human. At this moment, Paul deals with the next major question that comes up. Someone cries out, God's so unfair. Monstrously unfair. I mean, it's so obvious now, right? I mean, he's unjust. What he says about himself and the way he acts is so apart from what I like or I think. How can I, ready, trust him? What shall we say, verse 14, is God unjust? Not at all. One penned, if we cry out that God is unfair because he selects some or elects some, we have a faulty view of God. He's not some enlarged man in heaven with human emotion, will, or motives. He is not finite. God is perfect in knowledge, wisdom, power, presence, faithfulness, goodness, justice, mercy, grace. He is full of love and holiness. Is he not all-powerful? Is he not all-knowing, all-present, unchanging? Is he not eternal? Is he not actually above the bounds of time and space? Is he not self-existent, wholly separate, wholly without sin? Is he not always just? See, this is where the rubber meets the road between what we want and who he is. He makes perfect choices, and here it is. He is not responsible to anyone. He is an absolute sovereign. Now, this should and would scare us terribly if God was not perfect. But guess what? He is. All absolute sovereigns on earth that we've seen end up abusing many because they cannot handle power. But God himself is full of absolute holiness and love. And why is this important? Because our view of God actually impacts our everyday life. 
A.W. Tozer, the great preacher from Toronto, wrote, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping people. Paul says in verse 15, For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's what? Everyone say it loud. Mercy. The quotation comes from a time where Moses interceded on behalf of all of Israel because they had just worshipped the golden calf. God had mercy on his people for the terrible sin of idolatry, not because they deserved it, but simply because he chose to. Paul at this moment then jumps back pre-Exodus to the battle between Moses and Pharaoh, the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. I was reminded in my reading this week that both Moses and Pharaoh grew up in luxury. They both grew up in the pagan household of the Egyptian sovereign. Both received an education far beyond the standard of most. Both enjoyed a standard of living most would never see in their lifetimes. Both were heir to royal privileges, but everything diverged when God got involved. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 17, I, this is God speaking, will raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Just a side note, verse 17, that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. Isn't it crazy that we're sitting in Ajax, Ontario in 2011 and God's name is being proclaimed in all the earth? He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will harden who I harden. Harden means to become stubborn. It's a medical term. When an organ stops to function properly because it gets hard. The biblical idea is this, that someone's conscience or will, after repeated abuse, steadily decreases and then becomes inactive. Now, Paul doesn't remind us here that Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. Truthfully, if you read today Exodus 4 through 14, God gave Pharaoh opportunity to repent time and time again, but he resisted God. He chose evil and therefore hardened himself. God said, if you don't want my will, Pharaoh, then I will take my protective hands off and I will let you go down the path that is natural to you as a human, which is sin, and you will always end up in one place, hardened. I will save alone, God declares, but you are condemned and culpable, for you have chosen this path in Adam and in yourself, and I affirm, here it is, I as God affirm your choice to be rebellious, and thus you'll be hardened. As one poetically said, sunlight uh, sunlight melts ice, but it hardens clay. The third huge question suddenly comes up, okay, Paul, you say that Pharaoh was used to work out God's plan. How in the world can you hold Pharaoh to be accountable for his actions? God's so unfair. And by the way, how can you say that God is fair at all? I mean, how can he say we're responsible when he determines what's going to happen, at least when it comes to relationship with him? One of you will say to me, verse 19, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? And then Paul says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to? God. Human being, created, made, whose life, as one wrote, is just a breath, whose history proves over despite all our learning and technology, we keep repeating the same classical errors and we keep falling into unspeakable barbarisms. By the way, everyone, all of us have sinned in Adam. 
All of us have fought against God by our thoughts and actions every single day. As another wrote, we lost our right to complain about poor treatment when we actually chose to rebel. Therefore, anything that we receive as humans other than immediate death is something called mercy. People in mercy who need mercy don't have rights. That is why Paul then chooses at this very moment, chooses to use this image of the potter from Jeremiah 18. Isaiah 29, 45, and even the apocryphal writing called the Wisdom of Solomon. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Listen carefully. Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purpose and some for common use? Are we at negative 20 yet? (laughs) What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the, uh, the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, who he prepared in advance for glory, even us who are also called, not only from Jews, but also from non-Jews? Now that little phrase, prepared for destruction, something really interesting. Linguists, and I'm not one, say that this is written in what they call the middle voice, which it means there's a personal responsibility element, so it really reads like this prepared by themselves for destruction. Again, it goes back to the Adam and we, the idea of Adam and we all had choice and we lost it. That's it. God hardens a rebellious heart by giving us over to what we asked for. The question here this morning is why, are, the question here is not why are some destined to wrath or dishonor, but why have any of us even been made for honor? Or to put it another way, rather than complaining that some will not be saved, we should see the glass more full and thank God that anyone is going to be saved. All of this, Paul writes, Israel's failure, the calling of many non-Jews, was predicted in the Old Testament. This shouldn't shock any of us, he says, if you like the Old Testament. Hosea and Isaiah both said it. As it's written in Hosea, verse 25, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who are not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will suddenly be called the children of the living God. Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It's just written in Isaiah 2, previous, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. The failure of much of Israel, the inclusion of many non-Jews was God's plan all along. God is good. God has not failed. He's not in trouble in any way. And then, by the way, Paul ends this chapter by saying these words. He says, do you want to know why I've done all this? It's not just the odyssey. It's not just to defend God's character or will or help us to work out this very difficult... Listen, I want to drive back home the point that I've been making since chapter 1. It's all about one thing. Faith. What shall we say then, he writes? That non-Jews who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that's by trust, faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, as, is, as it, it was by works. They actually stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it was written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him, Jesus, will never be put to shame. 
Paul says to us this morning, it's about faith. It's about God's calling and us trusting in Jesus' work alone, for our life alone. It's grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus alone, not by works, not by being religious. That was never the plan. For all you Twitterers out there, get out your devices. Here it is. Seriously, N.T. Wright got this best when he said these words. What counts is grace, not race. What counts is grace, not race. Well, that's chapter 9. And I know it's going to take us here and all of us listening or watching probably more than a day or two to think through the implications of this passage. As I prayed and wrestled this week, though, I, I said, Lord, what to say to your community? And I just want to talk about two things real quick. I want to talk about truth this morning, and I want to talk about freedom. Please hear me now, please. At the heart of our movement as Christians is something called relational truth, which produces one amazing thing, godly living. The danger, though, is that if we don't have a right picture of God, even as Christians, we can invent him to be something he is not, which, of course, ends up being an idol. Truth brings life into any relationship. Romans 9 gives a balance to what many of us rightly value about God. Friendship, love, intimacy, our personal relationship with Jesus. But God is not just close. He's also transcendent. He's the great I am. He's the creator. We need in this church to fight against a loss of awe, which is connected to a loss of patience, reflection, and silence. In the book, The Trivialization of God, a dangerous illusion of a manageable deity. Isn't that good? Mm. The author rightly argues that many of us as Christians reduce God down to the God of my comfort, the God of my success, the God of my political bent, or the God that fits into my box. He wrote, the problem arises, listen please, when we forget the vast difference between our view of God and the reality of God when we equate the picture and the lens of the whole Bible. Any God I use to support my latest cause or fits comfortably within my understanding or experience will be a God no larger than I and thus will never be able to save me from my sin or inspire me to worship or empower me for service. Oh, if you have a worship problem, if you have an empowerment problem, there's a great chance you have an idol problem. Because the God you have in your mind maybe is just a little too small. Any God who fits the contours of me, he writes, will never transcend me, never really be God. And a God who does not kick out the bars of the prison called my perception will, nothing, will be nothing in the end but a trivial God. Romans 9 this morning reminds us here at C4 that we are created, we are not creator. We are dust, he is not. He is never sinful, we are always sinful. He is the author of history and time and life and death, and we are not the masters of our own destiny. Only when we as Christians, Christians, embrace this, then the next idea brings fruit. Trust and relationship, Paul would argue, are always rooted in sovereignty and election. Let me say that again. Trust and relationship are always rooted in the sovereignty of God expressed by election and predestination. And the fruit that it produces is something that this church dies for all the time. It's called freedom. God can be trusted because we know his election stands. Election reminds us 
of a lot of things. One put it this way in the little couplet. God is faithful to save his chosen remnant. The condemned have condemned themselves. Augustine put it this way. God did not choose us because we believe, but because he wanted us to believe. God did not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. The idea brings freedom to live and act. Think about this. Election brings freedom from the worst plague on earth. Religion. Religion says in all of its forms, I am saved by what I do. I'm saved by who I am. I'm saved by what I do. That is my guarantee. God accepts me because of me. Or the reverse side of the coin is secular humanism. I don't need God or the idea of God because look at me. Both are the same thing. And they always end up with broken dreams, loss of relationship, disappointment, and confusion. The good news is that this is not what God offers us. Paul said it so well. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on what? God's mercy. He and his community here at C4 are not about fear or perfectionism or self-reliance. That always in the end ends up in empty religion. Bruxy Cavey at the meeting house, who probably completely disagrees with me on the view of election I've just given you, sure got it right though when he wrote about faith and religion. Understanding the difference between religion and faith is crucial, he wrote, to understanding Jesus. Faith is a relational version of religion. On one occasion, some spiritual seekers came to Jesus to ask what work God would require them to do. No doubt their religious background prepared them to receive the response we'd expect, you know, pray and read this much, give this much, take a pilgrimage, don't do these things, do these things. But then he said something which was so simple They almost didn't grasp it. The work of God is this, he said, to believe in the one he has sent. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Trust me, Jesus said. Get to know me. They expected rules. He gave them relationship. If we want to experience a full, authentic spiritual life, religion is the last thing we need because it always brings bondage. Election and God's sovereignty is the very death nail in religion, and it is the very thing that brings all of us freedom from the thing we struggle with the most, proving ourselves to God. This freedom in relationship and identity then leads even to another great place. Not only freedom in our salvation and freedom from the burden of religion, it gives us freedom to actually live as Christians, minister in power. So many of us in this community are afraid to step out in faith. Fear is stronger than faith because our faith is not rooted in sovereignty. Can I say that again? Fear is stronger than our faith because our faith is not really rooted in sovereignty. Many of us still root it in where? Us. We are only the hands and feet of Jesus, the Bible teaches us. When we step out to tell our friends about Jesus, to pray, to love the poor, to disciple, to serve, to teach, there's a thousand expressions. The burden of the result is not ours. We are set free by the power of the Holy Spirit and the call of the Father to do His will, but the results are His, not ours. I believe that God, with my whole heart, has called this church to reach 10,000 people in some form or another, but that's His job. Our job is to be faithful. Our job is to be filled with the living God, using our spiritual gifts, and trusting in His sovereignty. He does the results. We're faithful. Chuck Swindoll His journey grabbed me again this week, and I want to end with his thoughts. 
One day as a young pastor, he was sitting with an older pastor. Older pastors ambush people a lot. I've noticed this. And he looked at Chuck Swindoll and he said these words. Here's the conversation. Why are you so afraid of God's sovereignty? Chuck said, I blinked and I looked out the window and down at my feet. (laughs) I said, well, it reminded me of junior high ministry, sorry. (laughs) And then he looked back at Ray's eyes and said, I'm afraid. Why? He said, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my zeal for the lost if I believe this. I'm afraid that, that if I really believe this, I'm going to become a passive person and I'm going to leave everything up to God to sort out the elect and I'm going to do nothing. But Ray said, you do remember that Spurgeon guy, right? That sovereign grace Baptist in London who said, if God had painted a stripe down the back of the elect, I'd spend my days walking up and down the streets of London lifting up shirt tails because God did say, whoever wills may come. He says, I preach the gospel to everyone, but I rely on him to lead those to faith who are his. Chuck Swindoll said, this was such a great help to me. The longer I serve God in ministry, the more comfort I find in the doctrine of God's sovereignty, sovereign choosing. Rather than making me passive, it's actually given me way more confidence because God has complete control and he's freed me to proclaim the good news with even more zeal and greater freedom. I am less burdened with whether I am ready, successful. My responsibility, he writes as a pastor, is to be faithful. God's responsibility is to deal with the results. And then he says, to God be the glory. See, this is the heart of why we must go here. The living God of heaven and earth, who is above and beyond much of what we think, says to myself and us as a community, number one, I am not in your little box. Don't put me there. I remind you that I am surrounded by all. I am God. Yes, I'm your friend. Yes, I am your brother through Christ. Yes, I I am deeply intimate with you. But never, never forget he would say to us who I am. The angels worship me. The world worships me. I am God. None other. And he would also remind us today that if we would trustingly as children raise our hands versus our fists and trust him, I'm talking to Christians here, and realize that God's sovereignty is the very thing that will root your identity where it should be, will root you in a place called trust, and will free you to pray and speak to people about Jesus and ask for healing and love the poor because God's sovereignty in the end is what matters. The church needs freedom, and freedom only comes when we root it in someone who can get things done, and it's never us. Struggle, wrestle, and pray, because chapter 10 is coming in two weeks. All right, let's pray. Jesus, as a community, we come to you, and to be honest, because you, I mean, you know all things, uh, this, is, this is tough for us. I mean, no matter our take on it in the end, we still are left in a place as North Americans where this just doesn't suit our box very well. But we as a community just want to say this morning that we acknowledge you are God and we're not. We want to thank you that you're sovereign, you're in control. We want to thank you that in mercy, not because you had to, but because you chose to, you've walked back into some of our lives. 
There's a lot of unanswered questions, Lord, honestly, and we uh, help us to work them out. But I just do pray this over our community, a few things. Number one, Lord, I pray um, for any of us, including myself, that may have idols, that we have reduced you into something that you're not. Forgive us, Lord, and we pray you'd begin to weed that out of us. We also pray this morning a few other things. Uh, we pray secondarily, Lord, that, that some people here would begin to understand that the burden that they place on themselves to always please you and connecting into relationship just needs to go, that they'd be free. And we pray also, Lord, that this, as we wrestle with this, I ask, Holy Spirit, that this idea, which is truth, would free up this church to do what it's called to do. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereign work of the Father, this church will accomplish what you've called it to do. Help us to be your hands and feet, and I pray that fear, fear and rooting ministry in ourselves would be banished from this place in the name of Jesus. Do what you need to do among us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca. 